This morning, we have a guest uh, that is becoming a good friend to our church. Uh, ben Kreps has uh, preached for us a few times. He is pastor at Living Hope Church in the Harrisburg area. Uh, ben has uh, been a part of the last year of the Antioch group that Dan McManus has also been a part of. We've been reporting on at times, helping churches that want to develop church planting uh, in the life of their church. Uh, ben is the host, the, the famous host of the weekly podcast of Mark Prater, the executive director of Sovereign Grace. Uh, ben, is, ben has been recognized more and more as uh, a, a leader of growing influence in our family of churches. So because of that, uh, he is being developed he's been invited to more and more of part of the the large picture ministries and outreaches of sovereign grace and uh, i'm grateful to see that because i know his great heart for the lord his love for the church his love for the gospel and god's word so uh, i've been celebrating what i've been seeing taking place in the life and ministry of my good friend and ben is also uh, going to be partnering with our church, with our ministry in Belarus. Uh, ben is going to, as soon as we're able to start physically getting to Belarus again, uh, Ben is committed to being a part of that. So we're excited uh, that he and his church will start to become more engaged with the nation of Belarus and serving them. He's been able to do a little bit on Zoom with me, with some of the pastors there. We're looking for that growing. So Ben, we are looking forward to having you bring God's word. We're so thrilled that you are here. Would you uh, welcome Ben Kreps? Off. I did, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your warm greeting. Uh, it is good to be back here with all of you in the first time for me and my family in your newly renovated sanctuary auditorium. Uh, and it's, it's beautiful. This is definitely an improvement. <laughs> so I'm glad for, for you guys, and I'm glad to be here. You may remember last year when I visited spoke in the um, multi-purpose fellowship hall and <clears throat> talked about how uh, I wasn't in, involved in the Antioch project, so I've been grateful to get to know Dan over the last year in that context in El Paso. We've been praying as a church, as I know you have been, and I see you continue to with your prayer meetings, uh, and so happy to report for those interested. We, I contacted, I emailed our region and inform them we intend to plant a church next September. So the Lord has been faithful. He has provided a man to lead that church plant. We have been evaluating him and his family. We're bringing him on staff in September as he prepares over the course of the next year to plant in September. So all that to say, uh, God is faithful. Continue to pray and watch God work because there's nothing like that. I mean, the, the, the testimony of that church plant, Lord willing, when it launches, will be a testimony to the grace and activity of God. We don't know what we're doing. I mean, we want to plant churches. We've never planted a church before. 
We'll lean on people who do know what they're doing for help, but at the end of the day, it isn't because of my stellar leadership, it isn't because of any program we put together, simply this, God has provided. So I wanna encourage you to keep praying in that regard, grateful for you and your heart for the lost and to see churches planted in New Jersey. Also wanna say how grateful I am for your pastors. As I interact with them in various contexts regularly, I find myself each time when I'm around your pastors uh, excited for your church. I know they carry you on their hearts. They love you. They love to talk about you. They love to talk glowingly about what God's doing in your midst. And so what a privilege it is to be here with all of you. If you would turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 6. I will read verses 16 through 21 in just a moment. Let me ask you this. What do you think would it be like to stand in the physical presence of the risen and glorified Christ at this moment? I mean, what what would we do with ourselves? What would we say? Well, the apostle and inspired author of the Gospel of John gives us a firsthand report of having experienced this, and perhaps for some who equate Jesus with simply pleasant pictures of a smiling man dressed in a robe with a neatly trimmed beard, it may be somewhat surprising to hear John's description of that experience in Revelation chapter one. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Perhaps we might expect that to stand in the presence of the risen, glorified, ascended, reigning Lord Jesus Christ in his holy glory would provoke in us an overwhelming sense of fear and we too would fall at his feet as though dead for he is glorious in holiness and while we are redeemed by his blood, we are sinners still. But this kind of experience is not relegated to his post-resurrection presence. In the days of his earthly 
ministry, we see just this sort of thing happening time and time again. Remember the miracle in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus told his disciple Peter after a fruitless night of fishing to cast your net into the water again, and they were miraculously filled to overflowing with fish? What was his response, Luke 5, 8? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Interesting response to miraculous provision. Or you may recall the transfiguration of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, one and following. And after six days, we read, Jesus took them, took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. So what is going on with all of this? Here's what's going on. Jesus is a man, yes, but he is no ordinary man, for he is both truly man and fully God. And there are times in his earthly ministry, as we read the Gospels, that those near him glimpse something of his holy, divine glory. And in light of his holiness and their sinfulness, it is appropriate to quake with fear in the presence of the one holy Son of God. Our text this morning we find just this sort of thing. We find the disciples witness a miracle, a sign of who Jesus is. And in the presence of his holiness, his otherness, his demonstration of divine power, they were frightened. They were terrified. But in this text as well, it's our joy to not only behold the Christ in his glory, but to hear his voice speaking to the disciples in their fear and to each one of us as we experience the presence of fear and anxiety in our lives. So let's read our text. And as we do, let us read reverently and expectantly for this is the inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, Word of God. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat 
And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. All right, let's get into this familiar story. Two points in this sermon, a simple outline. First point, we will observe the sign. Secondly, we will listen to the Savior. So first, observe the sign. By way of context, if you're familiar with John chapter 6 or if you're not, Jesus has just departed in our text from the scene of the miraculous feeding of 5,000 men and untold women and children as he miraculously multiplied five barley loaves and two small fish into a feast that satisfied the hunger of all present with a dozen baskets of leftovers to boot. We read in verse 15, right before our text, that the crowd responded to the miracle, but they responded inappropriately. Because Jesus fed the multitude as a sign to point to his coming as the Son of God who came to save and satisfy needy souls, and the bread, the provision of the bread and fish, was a sign that was intended to point to the reality he will describe in verse 22 of chapter 6, that he is the bread of life. He is the bread that comes down from heaven to save and satisfy our needy souls. But they missed the sign. They don't receive him as the savior. They see him as a useful political pawn. We read in verse 15, Jesus knew they were gonna try to seize him and force him to be king. That's a strange way to get a king. In other words, they're like, okay, this guy, he can provide for our physical needs. By the way, if you started multiplying bread, bread and fish and giving out free food, you would be quite popular as well. They see that and they want to make him the leader of a revolution against the Roman rulers and set up the Jewish people for a new era of victory and glory. But Jesus knows what they're thinking and he takes off. We read that he withdrew to a nearby mountain. He will have none of it. He will not be used for any reason whatsoever. He came with a specific mission to seek and save the lost and establish the kingdom of God. An eternal kingdom, not one of this earth. Now it's evening. It's getting dark, our text. And his disciples went down to the Sea of Galilee, jumped into the boat, and they head out toward Capernaum. The sun goes down as they row across the sea. It is now dark. and Jesus is nowhere to be found. A sudden storm kicks up. As they row, the waves rise and break upon the boat. A strong wind begins beating against these guys as they row furiously against the raging storm. We understand from New Testament scholars that actually this is quite common in the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee lies about 600 feet below sea level. Cool air from the southeast can rush in to displace the warm, moist air over the lake, churning up the water in a sudden, violent squall. And that's exactly what they experienced. These guys are slowly making headway as they row through the storm. They rowed, we read, three or four miles out to sea. And in the middle of this storm, they behold something astonishing. They see something that terrifies them. Jesus, who was not with them when they set out for Capernaum, well, now they see him walking across the raging waves. He is walking on top of the water, coming toward them. Oh, if you're familiar with this story, don't 
become so overly familiar that you miss how astonishing this scene would have been. Picture, if you can, in your sanctified imagination, this astonishing sight, their teacher calmly approaching them, walking through the wind on top of the crashing waves coming toward them. Verse 19, they were frightened. The storm surely was frightening, but it could not hold a candle to how frightened they were in the presence of Jesus walking across the water. And it is understandable. I mean, who has a category for this? This humanly impossible feat, walking across the water, in fact, walking on the raging sea. Listen, we know even in a controlled environment, this is an impossible task, humanly speaking. There was an article I read in preparation for this sermon that informs us that Usain Bolt, if you remember him from the Olympics, the fastest man on earth has a speed that tops out at about 10 meters per second. To run on water, you'd have to zip over the top three times as fast. You would have to run 30 meters per second to run on water. And he's not running. He's walking. And they're frightened. Because they just don't have a category for this kind of power. And so they are frightened because... As in that moment they are in the presence of Jesus, he is revealing to them something of his holy glory, his transcendence and otherness. And in the presence of the Holy One of God, they are afraid. As we read this text and observe what is happening, we make no mistake, we in this moment, as we hover over this text and sit under the word of God reading this text. We are in the presence of the divine son of God. Here we are given the opportunity to behold up close and observe his power and his glory and his dominion over the sea as he strides across the waves. New Testament scholar Edward Clink commenting on this text says, what the disciples saw was nothing less than the creator in control of his creation. There are no categories that adequately describe or contain such an event. Only the absorption of this category into the identity of God can explain what happened and about whom it speaks. At that moment, they were undoubtedly in the presence of of God. And perhaps Old Testament texts would have been coming to mind as the disciples observed this, texts that they would have been familiar with, such as Job 9, 4 through 8, where we read, speaking of God, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens, and listen, trampled the waves of the sea. Oh, they are, they are afraid. They're trembling in the presence of the divine power of the Son of God, his holy Glory, And in seeing something of his holy glory and power and dominion, they are afraid. Now listen, other 
so-called gods in their transcendence have the ability to make people afraid. Other so-called gods can have this effect. For instance, the God of Islam, Allah, is high and holy and transcendent and powerful. The pagan gods of their day that supposedly controlled the elements of creation, well, they had the ability to terrify, but as we continue to read, Jesus reveals what God is truly like, that he is holy and mighty and powerful, and he is full of mercy and grace. He is transcendent, he is holy, and he is near and personal with his people. The pagan gods had to be placated with gifts and certain kinds of rituals so they didn't become angry and destroy the people that were worshiping them. Jesus comes as the gift of heaven for those who have nothing to offer to God except need. And that brings us to our second point. Listen to the Savior. So we, we survey the scene. A raging storm. The disciples furiously rowing toward Sure, and their teacher comes walking across the waves. They catch a glimpse of divine glory and power and are frightened. Look at verse 20. But, but he said, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Do do not be afraid because it is I. I am present with you. It is I, Jesus Christ. I am no phantom or ghost. This is the Christ, the flesh and blood son of God who speaks to them. Don't be afraid. I am here. And this clearly had the result that Jesus intended because we read, then they were glad. (laughs) They were scared. They were frightened in the presence of the, the glory and power of Jesus. But Jesus only has to speak to them. It is I. Do not be afraid. I am here. And their fear turns to gladness. One, one should expect that an up-close encounter with God would provoke fear and trembling. It is appropriate to be fearful and tremble in the presence of our holy God and in the presence here of the divine Son of God revealing his glory and power. But Jesus, oh, Jesus speaks to them tenderly, kindly, lovingly, caring for them. Do not be afraid. No need to fear. No need to fear the storm. No need to be afraid of me. It's me. It is I. Do not be afraid. What what we are seeing here is, once again, the biblical pattern of people trembling with fear in the presence of the holy followed immediately by a declaration of grace and comfort from God himself. 
Surely this is just the sort of thing we read way back in the prophet Isaiah when he writes in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I grew up in a faithful church-attending Christian family. I heard the gospel all throughout my childhood. I remember being five and my mom asking if I was scared to go to hell. And I said, yes. And she said, well, if you pray this prayer with me, you won't. And so being five and not wanting to go to hell, thought that's a good deal. And I prayed, but nothing of the life of God was in my heart. And so as I grew into my teen years, I grew to hate the church. In fact, in my early teen years, I attended Living Hope Church, where I am now the lead pastor. Hated it. Wanted nothing to do with God, and everybody was clear about that. The oldest kid in the church, I was the bad kid. In the church, the kind of kid you didn't want your children to play with. I was angry. I was bitter. I hated God. Thought I had discovered life in my later teen years when I began to party and to use drugs. And for a season, I felt that I finally had found a happy life, a satisfying life. It worked for a season. Sin is sweet for a season. As I came into my mid-twenties, though, I began to become miserable, racked with anxiety and guilt. I allowed myself to pursue any and all sin to my shame. And at 27, racked with anxiety, aware of how sinful I was, I was attending a recovery meeting for drug addicts, alcoholics. And it was during that time without any 
one talking to me about God. I was not going to church. I wanted nothing to do with God. I was not looking for God. I simply wanted to find a way to manage my chaotic life. I became aware of the presence of God. That's how I'll describe it. I had this realization, God is real, and I was utterly horrified. I would later, as I began to read the Bible, read Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7, and relate to it totally. I was horrified. An awareness of God's presence, his holy presence, and was, was acutely aware of my sin. I, I felt in that moment, I should just, woe is me, I should just dissolve. But the gospel that had been sown into my life by so many throughout my childhood came alive. And reflexively, as I experienced the horror of my sinfulness before a holy God, reflexively, all of a sudden, I, <laughs> this is why I need Christ. This is why the cross is so crucial. I, I reflexively, ran in my fear into Christ, having heard the good news about Jesus Christ. And as I came to Christ, I knew my guilt was taken away. My sin was atoned for because I knew that Jesus Christ had taken that guilt on himself and the wrath that was deserved upon himself, and his blood was sufficient to atone for all my sins. When I, when I turned to Christ in fear in the presence of a holy God, I found him present and able and eager to take away the dread of God's righteous judgment and to give gladness through forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. And now, can you believe it? I'm the lead pastor of that church. Nobody predicted that one. Yes. I mean, you can't make this up. You just can't. There were no prophetic words when I was 15, walking around with my head down, listening to Nirvana on my Walkman. If you're under 30, you have no idea what a Walkman is. And now, I stand in front of my church each Sunday declaring the gospel to people who prayed with my mom when I was a teenager with no evidence that God was at work. Some of them with children who have grown to adulthood and walked away from Jesus to their parents' heartbreak. That Maybe that's you Oh, I, the sorrow I caused my parents. Maybe you find yourself heartbroken because your child has rejected Christ.
don't give up praying. Press into God. You know what? I'm standing up here as a living illustration of what God can do with the bad kid. That I would be saved is unspeakably glorious. How could that be? And a pastor? How did this all happen? It's the grace of God. Trust God. Do not give up your faith in God for your children. And if you're not a Christian, I'm sure I can speak on behalf of this church when I let you know that you are most welcome here. What a privilege to be able to share Christ with you this morning. We're so glad that you're here. And if in this morning you are aware of your sin and your need for a savior, do not delay. If in this moment you are aware of something of the presence of God and therefore there is conviction for sin and trembling before the Lord, I have good news for you. Turn to Christ and he will take away your guilt and atone for all your sin right now. I urge you to put your faith in him. So, beloved, what can we take away and apply from this story? A couple of implications connected to this story. First, in this story and whenever we read the word of God and behold the glory of Jesus Christ, it is a fresh opportunity to humble ourselves before him. Edward Clink again says, the church is to kneel at the feet of Jesus. The feet that walk on water. We kneel before him because he is the Lord. Saying this though, I would have to disagree with what a well-meaning pastor recently put out on social media that the gospel is simply this, Jesus is Lord. That's insufficient by itself because the bare knowledge of Jesus as Lord is terrifying for sinners like you and me. Oh, oh, if he is just Lord, then we have reason to fear because he is holy. He is the king and we are sinners still. But the good news of the gospel is that he is both Lord and Savior. He is the Lord who has died as our substitute. And so we we kneel at his feet, the feet that walk on water, gladly. We We gladly submit to our Lord Jesus Christ. We submit and kneel at his feet with joy. Second, We behold here that Jesus is the sovereign one who has dominion over the wind and the waves, so much so that he can just go for a little walk on the raging tide. So we understand here he is sovereign 
over every storm in this world and in our lives that we may experience. I don't know what storm you are in, but I, 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 I'm confident that many of us arrive here this morning in a storm or having recently been in a storm or with the knowledge and the wisdom to understand a storm is coming. The difficult, painful relationship. Maybe the rebellious child. The persistent experience of suffering. Simply put, the chaos of this world. You in a storm. Hear, hear the Savior. Listen to the Savior speak to you and declare, it is I. I am present. Do not be afraid. And so 19th century Anglican pastor J.C. Ryle writes, many of the things which now frighten Christians and fill them with anxiety would cease to frighten them if they would endeavor to see the Lord Jesus in all ordering every providence and overruling everything so that not a hair falls to the ground without him. They are happy who can hear his voice through the thickest clouds and darkness and above the loudest winds and storms saying, it is I, be not afraid. You in a storm? If you're not in a storm, you will be in a storm at some point. In the storm, when the storm arrives, we remember his promise in Matthew 28 when he declared upon his resurrection, behold, I am with you to the end of the age, declaring he would never leave or forsake us so that we understand in every storm he is present to declare to us, it is I, I am here, do not be afraid. Listen, what? Let me urge you to cultivate a conscious awareness of the living and active presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life so that when you are in the storm, you hear him speak. Listen, when you're in the storm, you're going to need to hear him speak like this. In fact, let me encourage you to consider, this is just, I, I, this phrase is so helpful that Jesus says because, because it, it's so easy to remember. This is one to lock away. This is one to hide in your heart so that when in the storm, you have access to this. You have access to hear the voice of the Savior declaring to you, I am here, it is I, I am present, do not be afraid. Lock this away, hide this word in your heart. You're gonna need it in the storm. And as this text ends, we find, we read here, the boat immediately arrived at the land to which they were going with Christ in the boat. So too with us, with Christ in the boat of our lives, he will bring us to a promised land in his return, always present, skillfully guiding us to the shore of a new heavens and new earth where we, like the disciples, will see him and we will tremble, but we we will tremble with joy, all fear banished. Revelation 21 says, no more sea, no more chaos, no more storms. In that moment, we will hear a loud voice declare, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. No more storms. No more death. No more fear. No more crying. No more warning. No more pain because Christ will be present with us bodily, physically, as he leads us to the shore of his promised land. And so we will declare in that day with the psalmist, Psalm 107, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Do you long for in the storms of this life, do you long for a safe haven? Well, then happily, you can declare this morning what holds our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trial, who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. Here's who. Christ, our hope in life and death. Yes. Let me close with this. When we compare the whole history of this world with the coming eternity of life in Christ, with God, it's a moment. It feels long. It's so short. So what that means Beloved, in just a little while, the question that I asked in the introduction, what would it be like to stand in the physical presence of the risen and glorified Jesus Christ? Well, we're going to find out soon. When he returns, as we opened up this meeting from Philippians 2, we will observe and experience that all will kneel before him in the presence of his brilliant and holy glory. All, all will kneel. Some will kneel because they cannot help themselves but bow down in terror before the holiness of Christ. But we, we will kneel with joy. And in that moment, we will be home That day, that is so great, it is simply described in Scripture as the day. The day. None of our days hold a candle to the day. C.S. Lewis once wrote that all this life is the prologue to the great story. For when we see him, we will finally begin the first chapter of our glorious story, a story that has no end, where each chapter is better than the next. So, as you long for that day, as you navigate through the storms of this life,
Listen to the Savior in your fear and anxiety declare to you, it is I, I am present. Do not be afraid. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how, how precious a gift you have given to us of your word. For it is in and through your word that we behold the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for any who are present in this moment in the middle of a fierce storm with faith that is growing weak. I pray, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit that you through your word would speak and they would hear in their innermost being your voice declaring, it is I. I'm present. Do not be afraid. I have you. I hold you. I will not let you go. Pray that these simple words of Jesus would have an outsized effect on our lives by building our faith and sustaining us as we look forward to the day, Jesus, where we will see you and we will be like you, for we will see you as you truly are. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.